Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number one, the introduction to the book of Ruth. Well, today we begin our study of the book of Ruth. And as is our usual format, I'm going to begin with an introduction to set the stage. But I'd also like to just read to you, just keep your Bibles in your laps for now, look up here, the very first few verses of this that that really itself begins to set a stage. Listen to these words. Back in the days when the judges were judging, and at a time when there was famine in the land, a certain man from Beit Lechem went to live in the territory of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. And the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And his two sons were named Machlon and Kilion. And they were Ephratim from Beit Lechem and Yehuda. And they arrived in the plain of Moab and settled there. And Elimelech... Naomi's husband died and she was left she and her two sons and they took wives for themselves from the women of Moab the name of one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth they lived there for about ten years and then Machlon and Kilion died both of them and the woman was left with neither her two sons nor her husband so she prepared to return with her daughters-in-law from the plains of Moab. For in the plains of Moab she had heard how Adonai had paid attention to his people by giving them food. She left the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and took the road leading back to Judah. At times throughout this study... We're going to take an extended look at several principles that are addressed in the book of Ruth. And we're going to examine them in depth. Now those of you who are starting your study with Torah class, with beginning with the book of Ruth, are going to be at a little disadvantage. All right? Unless you've received instruction somewhere else about the Hebrew Bible. Those who have studied with us beginning with Genesis, are going to see several familiar topics woven into this story. And so many loose ends are going to be tied up. And other matters that we've discussed many months ago, we're going to review. And some topics we're going to discuss more in depth as we encounter them in Ruth. I think you're going to get a lot out of this study. Now that said... I'm going to warn you, if your mind wanders off, you're going to get lost. Okay? This study is going to be somewhat technical at times, but also really interesting. So today, as part of this introduction to Ruth, I want to take a little time and pause to reaffirm a very basic principle of Seed of Abraham Ministries. One which is central and at the heart of the point of view of Torah class and which is also in desperate need of revival, if not downright revolution, within the church. 
And it is that what we call the Old Testament, what is called Tanakh in the Hebrew, is not old. It's not obsolete. Nor has the New Testament somehow undone it. Rather, it is as much needed and remaining as a foundation for the entire Bible and for the salvation that we're offered in Christ as a concrete slab and footings attached to bedrock are the needed and remaining foundation for any house that hopes not to be washed away at the first signs of a storm. How is it then that the body of Christ nearly universally has come to the conclusion that the Old Testament is as irrelevant to us today as is a horse and buggy? Or even more, that the covenant of Moses was destroyed and abolished as though it were nailed to the cross of Christ. To a modern churchgoer, that premise isn't even disputed. Okay? It probably seems as though the demise of the former testament has always been understood as fact. But as we have learned, especially from our study of the book of Judges, it is fallen man's natural way to replace the commands of God with similar sounding doctrines that are more in step with our current wants and desires. In our day, we find ourselves sliding back unawares into the age-old enemy of Judeo-Christianity, Gnosticism. Gnosticism seeks to humanize God and to simultaneously naturalize the mystical and the supernatural. Gnosticism is like an ancient underground river that at times surfaces and so flows visibly and raging and redirecting the landscape that it cuts through. Okay? But in other eras, it stays burrowed under the surface, alive, hiding just out of sight, going largely undetected, except by those who know to watch for it. Gnosticism never dies. It merely assumes different forms in different seasons as the archenemy of God, the master of deception, Satan does. And this is because Gnosticism is one of the evil one's greatest and most effective tools of keeping mankind separated from God. The Gnosticism of today, one of the names for it, is New Age. And just like in the days of Paul and Peter and John, it's beginning to bubble up from its hiding place. And the unsuspecting and thirsty are drinking of its bitter substance that at times, that in time, sours our souls. All the time thinking that it's refreshing living water. So appealing is it that believers are lining up at the bookstores for a big gulp. And pastors are preaching it because it's so well received. The New Age Christianity 
makes men more like our beloved animals and God more like us. And how we love that thought. God's no longer the Almighty Father. He's our kindly grandfather who just looks the other way at our indiscretions. Yeshua is no longer our master and, master and savior. He's a combination good buddy and aspirin tablet. Men are no longer made in the image of God. We're just a branch of the animal kingdom that happened into opposable thumbs and a slightly higher functioning brain than the other branches. And this isn't at all new, by the way. None of this is new. It's considerably older than the Old Testament. Now, I've explained before that the most recent cycle of Gnosticism can be traced, absolutely traced, to a period known among scholars as the Enlightenment. Okay. A period that brought us the likes of the philosophers Hume and Kant and Voltaire. Birthed in the 18th century, the Enlightenment sought to rid Europe of any sense of being tied to a burdensome religion or an intangible God. It was in response to the Enlightenment, and in a lesser degree to the printing press and the sudden availability of the Bible to the masses, that the new institution of systematic theology was born theoretically to counter the effects of the Enlightenment. Systematic theology, hear me, systematic theology is the Christian Talmud, so to speak. It is a written system of man-made answers and doctrines brought about by our religious authorities and thought to properly dispense the mind of God to his followers. And while the intent may have seemed good, and although many passages of Scripture were invoked, it has brought a lot of pain and distortion of truth to believers of every branch of Christianity. One of the underlying tenets of Christian systematic theology is that the Old Testament has been replaced by the New. And as secular humanism was the agenda that the Enlightenment sought to bring about, in a strange way, systematic theology has unknowingly aided it by replacing obedience to the Father with unfettered liberty in Jesus. Unfettered. The plan has been a rousing success, to say the least. So do not think that such a belief that the Old Testament is dead and gone is an ancient one. In fact, the notion of it is only about 250 years old. And it was completely unknown to our church fathers. Now in academic circles... There are those scholars who are considered the founding fathers of their fields. They are rare men, even more than they are pioneers. 
They have a gift for being able to see things that other men have overlooked. They have the ability to face a matter with a completely fresh approach. In Christian writings, there are scholars whose works form the basis for the work that others who follow them are going to do. Commentaries, in particular, rely on the earlier works of these pioneering scholars as their reference points. And thus the outstanding works of these rare men become known as reference material. Now the vast majority of the works Christian laymen and teachers read from today were created by modern academics who use these much earlier pioneering scholars as their reference points. Okay. So as a last offering before we get back on the road to Ruth, from our little short detour here, I would like to quote for you the preface to the commentary on the Old Testament written by the noted scholars C.F. Keel and F. Delich. Okay. Virtually every Christian commentary written within the past century relies on that work. Okay. Kiel and Delich were Germans. They were pioneering Christian scholars who wrote in the early to middle part of the 1800s. Okay. Now, this is the word by word and entire preface to their seminal work, the commentary on the Old Testament. And I want you to pay very close attention to what they're explaining to us all. And I really hope you'll take it to heart and never forget it. Keep in mind again, what I'm about to read to you, read to you was written more than 150 years ago. Okay, it starts out like this. The Old Testament is the basis of the New. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke unto the fathers by the prophets, hath spoken unto us by his only begotten Son. The church of Christ is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. For Christ came not to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill as he said to the Jews, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye will have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So also, a short time before his ascension, he opened the understanding of his disciples, that they might understand the scriptures, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, expounded unto them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. With firm faith in the truth of this testimony of our Lord, the fathers and teachers of the church in all ages have studied the Old Testament scriptures and have expounded the revelations of God under the Old Covenant in learned and edifying works, unfolding to the Christian community the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God which they contain and impressing them upon the heart for doctrine, for reproof, 
for improvement, for instruction in righteousness. It was reserved, pay real close attention now, it was reserved for deism, naturalism, and rationalism, which became so prevalent in the closing quarter of the 18th century, late 1700s, to be the first to undermine the belief of the inspiration of the first covenant. And more and more to choke up this well of saving truth. So that at the present day, mid-1800s, depreciation of the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament, Old Testament is as widely spread as the ignorance of what they actually contain. At the same time, very much has been done during the past 30 years on the part of believers in divine revelation to bring about a just appreciation and correct understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. May the Lord grant His blessing upon our labors and assist with His own spirit and power a work designed to promote the knowledge of His holy word. That's pretty impressive. Keel and Deleach were eyewitnesses to that moment in history that the church sawed the Bible in half and threw the first part of it away. They chronicled it, they fought it, and even though they are still among the most esteemed Christian scholars studied to this day, their caution and warning has been largely ignored. But this really shouldn't surprise us all that much. In many ways, it simply follows the same pattern that we observe in the standard modern exegetical teaching of the New Testament, which is itself so dependent on Messiah's Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in the book of Matthew. Because at the center of Christ's teaching is the key admonition to all who would call him Lord and study his words. This admonition's purpose was to create a context and a, a set of boundaries for understanding and applying his teaching. It wasn't some impulsive admonition spoken in the passion of sincere oratory, but rather it was a very necessary one that he foreknew would play a major role in the eventual apostasy of his church if it went unheeded. And here's what he said in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a ute or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not till everything that must happen has happened. So now whoever disobeys the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Let's talk about the book of Ruth now. And I'm going to begin by telling you that for a short little four chapter book, it has an incredibly complex structure, theme, and theology that defy simplistic solutions. There is no monochromatic expression of its purpose neatly bundled within its passages. Although some have tried to think it that it is. In fact, after centuries of studying this book, much academia is so confounded by it that most have avoided even making commentary on it. It will take some time to explain to you what makes it so complex, and I will do that. But on the other hand, I can tell you in a nutshell why Christian scholars practically avoid this little book. There is no way to make heads or tails of it if one knows little or nothing of ancient Hebrew culture or traditions. Or if one seeks to understand the story in Gentile terms using Western thinking. Before we get into the complexities, let's get some of the basics out of the way. Ruth in Hebrew is root, R-U-T, or root, and it means friendship. Or to befriend, and it fits very well within that, the, the tone of the whole story. Now there's a lot of debate about just when the book of Ruth was written, but virtually none about the time period the, sto- the story is said to take place, the era of the Judges. Now, one good time marker for us is that we're told that Ruth's father, Elimelech, left his home on the west bank of the Jordan to live in Moab because there was a famine going on in Canaan. We can read in Judges 6, 3, and 4 about a severe food shortage uh, that was caused by the Midianites who were always coming and stealing Israel's food supply, and then would destroy what they couldn't carry off. This occurred for several years, and its effect was fairly widespread around Canaan. Thus, there is good reason to think that the events of the Ruth narrative occurred about the time that Gideon was judging. Now, we usually think of a famine as being weather or pestilence related. But in fact, famine can be a man-made disaster caused by war. We see this over and over in various places, particularly today in Africa, where a dominant tribe will try to wipe out an opponent by destroying their livestock and crops and even blocking any food aid to them. This is, by every definition, a famine. Now, since there is no record, biblical or otherwise, of a weather or pestilence-related regional famine in Canaan during the era of the Judges, very likely, Elimelech moved his family to Moab to escape the ongoing food shortages caused by the marauding Midianites and their partners in crime, Amalek. Now, as for when it was written, The first verse helps us to know 
that it was certainly written after the period of the Shoftim, the judges, were judging in Israel, as it is clearly looking back to that time. So that puts it from King Saul or later. Further, it gives us the genealogy of King David. So it had to be written at the earliest in the time of King David. Now, no mention or the genealogy of Solomon is given. And, of course, he immediately followed David. So some stop there and say it's self-evident that it was written during David's reign. But that Solomon's name isn't mentioned is awfully thin evidence as to date exactly when it was penned. Now others propose that it was actually written after the return of the Jews from their exile in Babylon. And that the purpose of the book was to reestablish the right of the line of David to once again assume the throne of Israel. All of which, by the way, at that time, that remained of it being Judah. Now modern literary critics use a little different method of dating these sorts of things. And they look to writing styles and the use of certain phrases and even, even some expressions that are used to ascertain the date. The main arguments concerning the book of Ruth stems around whether the literary style used in Ruth uses what they call classical um, biblical Hebrew or late biblical Hebrew. And we're certainly not going to delve into that. But it doesn't hurt for us to understand the argument because there is validity to their reasoning. The reality is that languages change over time. English wasn't an identifiable language until around the 1300s A.D. Okay? But if you were to try and read it in that ancient form today, while you might recognize it as kind of English-like, many of the words wouldn't even be known to us and the sentences would make no sense. Even many characters in the early English alphabet that they used would be totally unfamiliar to us. By the time of the King James Bible, in the English language, the language had evolved closer to modern English, but even the King James style of English can be a, a challenge to us in the 21st century. Further, expressions and sayings from an early era of English disappear to be replaced by newer ones. And then those later ones get modified. And then they even take on different meanings as time marches on. It works that way with all spoken and written languages, of course, including Hebrew. Now, biblical Hebrew is substantially different than modern Hebrew. Not so much so that communication can't take place. But it would be like an American trying to communicate with somebody who speaks only 16th century King James English. Our understanding would be pretty limited. Today's Bible scholars have identified many phrases and words that were used at one point 
in Israel's history, but then they fell into disuse later. Or alternately, phrases that were used later in Israel's history that were never used in earlier times. By looking for these words and phrases, a scholar can somewhat date when the author wrote a piece. Now another way is to look for certain expressions that come under the influence of similar but different languages that made their way into the Hebrew vocabulary. Bible scholars today speak about Aramaisms. In other words, terms from the Aramaic language. Okay. That are found in the Old Testament and indeed there is no doubt of these Aramaic words in the Old Testament. But when we think of Aramaic, the tendency is to remember that Jesus spoke one of his most famous sentences as he hung on the cross. He said, Eli, Eli, lemana shabatani, meaning, my, ma, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that was Aramaic. Okay? So non-linguistically, non-linguistically oriented Christian scholars have tended to take it for granted that Aramaic was a rather late evolved language. But in reality, Aramaic can be dated at least as far back as 1400 B.C., the early part of the period of the Judges. So identifying an Aramaism, an Aramaic expression, in the book of Ruth doesn't help much. In fact, Elimelech, Ruth's father-in-law, that name is almost assuredly an Aramaic form. Not only that, but we find evidence of, bo- of both classical Hebrew and late Hebrew in the book of Ruth. Bottom line, it was probably written sometime after King Solomon, but well before the exile of the Jews to Babylon. But about the best we can do is narrow it down to a range of around 300 years as to when it was written. Now, some of you may have noticed by now that Ruth, the book of Ruth, is not in the same place in our complete Jewish Bibles as it is in other of your Bibles. Okay? In the complete Jewish Bible, we're going to find it located just after the Song of Solomon and just before Lamentations. But in most Protestant Bibles, you're going to find it immediately following the book of Judges. So what gives? The answer is, that the location of the book of Ruth can be used as a very quick way to determine whether your particular Bible was translated from the original Hebrew text or it was translated from the Greek Bible. Or in more technical terms, was it translated from the Tanakh or from the Septuagint? The Hebrew Bible places Ruth as among the last three divisions of the Hebrew, uh, uh, that the Hebrews assigned to the Tanakh, a division called the Ketuvim. All right? And the Septuagint places Ruth immediately following the book of Judges. So if your Bible 
has Ruth immediately following Judges. That means your Old Testament was translated from the Greek, not from the Hebrew. Okay, now let me be very clear. The location of Ruth doesn't make your Bible a good one or a bad one. Right? Or a superior one or an inferior one. But it can explain, when you lay out different Bibles on your desk, why they may all sound a little different. Especially the ones translated from Hebrew as compared to the ones translated from Greek. Now the Hebrew sages divided the Old Testament, the Tanakh, into three parts. The Torah, the Nevaim, and the Ketuvim. The Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. With Ruth placed in the section called the Writings. But in later times, the Hebrews also grouped certain books together for liturgical purposes. That is, how they might get used in synagogue worship practices. So a group of five books was assembled, calling the Megalot, okay, meaning scrolls. And these consist in order of the Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. Depending on the occasion, one of those books will be read at a synagogue service. For instance, the book of Ruth is always read during Shavuot, Pentecost. So thus far, here's what we've learned today about the book of Ruth. It was written somewhere between 900 and 600 B.C. The story itself is set in the much earlier time of the judges, probably around the time of the judge Gideon. The book is located in your Bible depending on whether your Bible is translated from the Greek or from the Hebrew. And Ruth's father-in-law, Eli Melech, is at least partially an Aramaic name. And Ruth means friendship. Now, Ruth was not a Hebrew. Ruth was a Moabite. She was a Gentile. Moab was Lot's son, or more correctly by our modern thinking, grandson, born of Lot's daughter. And he founded the territory called by his name, Moab. So Ruth's genealogy goes back through Lot to Abraham's brother, Haran. Haran was... Lot's father. So it's quite interesting that Ruth is one of only two Gentiles who have a book of the Bible named after them. The other one being Job. Okay, That she was a Gentile and a woman is all the more fascinating. Okay? And the only other woman who had a name who had a book in the Bible named after her was who? Esther. Right. But Ruth and Esther have some very interesting contrasts that are worth noting. In fact, one of the many complexities that forms the book of Ruth, in addition to her being a Gentile, is that it is a book of contrasts. And we'll we'll talk about those as, as appropriate. Let's compare Ruth and Esther a little bit. It's kind of fascinating. Ruth was a Gentile. Esther was a Hebrew. 
Ruth was a Gentile who lived among the Jews. Esther was a Jew who lived among the Gentiles. Ruth was a daughter of a foreign nation and brought to the promised land. Esther was a daughter of the promised land, but she was brought forth within a foreign nation. Ruth eventually married a Jew. Esther married a Gentile. God's name is mentioned a number of times in the book of Ruth. It's not mentioned even once in the book of the Jewish Esther. However, in both cases, the women are characterized as having great faith. And so they are greatly blessed by the God of Israel and both play pivotal roles in Israel's salvation history. Thus, another of the great complexities of the book of Ruth is that it demonstrates this mysterious relationship of Israel to Gentiles who believe in Yehovah. A relationship that St. Paul did his best to try and explain, but for which there really are no words. A relationship that both Israel and Gentile Christians have actually sought to sever, but can never quite accomplish it because it's a spiritual relationship. A man recently said to me, I don't know quite how to understand it, but it seems to me that Christians are just an inch from being Jews, and Jews are just an inch from being Christians. I don't think Paul could have said it more eloquently. And thus in the same way that Ruth and Esther was, were such exact opposites in many ways, they were in a much deeper sense one inch from being identical. Now, just as there is a great contrast between Ruth and Esther, so there is a great contrast between the book of Ruth and the book of Judges. Even though they occur at the same time under similar circumstances, Ruth's story is a pleasant tale of goodness and friendship and brotherly love and of kindness right? and of a greater purity of worship of the God of Israel. The book of Judges, on the other hand, tells us of evil and rebellion, and darkness, and unfaithfulness, and brother turning against brother, and apostasy from the God of Israel. So what we will see is that just as in all times, even if the whole people of God are seemingly completely out of harmony with Him, there will be a remnant that seeks to remain obedient and open to the moving of His Spirit upon them. Even in the darkest of times, there will be enclaves of light. Thus, the book of Ruth gives us insight into the principle that with God, all is never lost. And that hope remains even when it seems that none is possible. Now, a good question right about now ought to be, What's the purpose for the book of Ruth being written at all? 
Well, what the human author intended to prove or to demonstrate at God's inspiration is a complex issue. So much so that there is wide-ranging opinion, even as to something as seemingly simple as the purpose behind the book of Ruth. But because we could debate it, could debate it ad infinitum, as has been the case among scholars, I'd rather simply share with you, in summary form, the six most likely purposes that are generally agreed upon. And let me say that the scholarly mind usually says, we must choose from among these six one purpose for the book. But I say to you, that's not at all necessary. Right? Rather, there can be, and there are, in my view, several purposes for the writing of the book of Ruth. Well, the first one is to provide a genealogical, a record of a genealogical link between the tribe of Judah and David so as to continue the messianic line since there is no genealogy given of David in the book of 1 Samuel where he was anointed. Second, to show that there was faith and obedience in that terrible time of apostasy, the time of the judges. And so God still had a remnant to work with. Third, and this is, this is one we're going to spend a lot of time with, to illustrate the concept of the kinsman redeemer in action. Fourth, to show that God's grace was not limited to Hebrews, but it could be extended to Gentiles under the right circumstances. Fifth, to establish the superiority of the house of David as a permanent successor to the house of Saul. All right, and thereby defend the claims of David to the throne of Israel over the claims of a fellow named Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth was Saul's son. Okay, very likely what I just told you is the foremost reason in the writer's mind, even if he couldn't foresee the connection of the book of Ruth to a future Messiah. Okay. After, you see, what happened was that after King Saul was killed in battle and his body was hung up on the walls of Beit Shan, David did not immediately become king over all of Israel. At first, he was only ruler over the southern portion called Judah. Ishbosheth ruled over the ten northern tribes and the territory that at that time was called Ephraim. Thus, in the writer's eyes, the book of Ruth is a kind of appendix to the book of Judges, just as the final five chapters of the book of Judges is called by scholars the appendices. Okay. See, the problem the writer was countering was that essentially the book of Judges is all about the canonization of Israel. That is, through syncretism, the tribes of Israel had absorbed and melded Canaan's culture and religion into their own. 
until it was some unholy, illicit mixture, totally unsuitable for God's people. The book of Ruth is to demonstrate that the ancestors of David were godly and more pure and that they weren't part of that unholy mixture. Okay. Sixth and finally, this is the one that most Christian commentators begin and end with. The book of Ruth was to show that the kinsman redeemer in this story, who's Boaz, was a type of Messiah. And that is certainly true. I think we'll close here for today and pick up next week.